hppodcraft.com. It is less than 500 years since an entire half of the world was discovered. It is less than 200 years since the discovery of the last continent. The sciences of chemistry and physics go back scarce one century. The science of aviation goes back 40 years. The science of atomics is being born. And yet, we think we know a lot. We know little or nothing. Some of the most startling things are unknown to us. When they are discovered, they may shock us to the bone. I agree with that opening reading. The most startling things are unknown to us. That is, in fact, the prerequisite for being startling, <laughs> is for it to be <laughs> unknown. If it's something you know, it can't really startle you. But I, yeah. I get the sentiment. We've discovered a lot in a short amount of time, enough to make us cocky. Yet there is so much more. What are we discovering today? We are discovering Donald A. Wolheim's Mimic. It's a very short story that we're going to cover here on the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. We're here at hppodcraft.com. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. And uh, whose voice was that we just heard reading? Our reader is Greg Johnson, an old favorite. I say old, but Greg actually just turned 17 years old. What? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, he's very young. <laughs> he looks much older than he is, but he uh-huh. attributes that to just having an old soul. Oh. One that he keeps in a little glass bottle. Oh. Yeah. Greg is a very strange guy. Well, you know, just having something like that to protect in your house, that can really age a person. Yeah. Having an old soul in a bottle. So Sure. Especially now that you've told everybody about it. <laughs> well, you want to see more Greg, and I know I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, you should check him out in his new video that he's done, How to Get a Killer Vocal with Woody Brown. I love Woody Brown. I get all my pro audio tips from Woody Brown. Yeah, that's how this whole podcast sounds as good as it does. Absolutely. All comes from the master. You know as well as I do that mud don't pay the mortgage. <laughs> mud don't pay the mortgage. I also want to remind folks, since this is the free show for the month, that we are now on Patreon. Yeah. Look us up, patreon.com slash Media. You get all four shows for the month when you subscribe, and at the right levels, you also get our comments show, where we talk about what you think or what we think about what you think and we also do a special topics show that changes every month we just talked about Lovecraftian film and TV Mm -hmm. the last one and folks seem to like that we have some other plans as we grow so if you're not listening to us on Patreon please listen to us on Patreon be part of the team yeah join now get on board this story has been suggested by quite a few listeners over the years it's come up a lot Mimic and I can see why it's short it's creepy and it also served as the basis or at least as a jumping off point for the Guillermo del Toro movie Mimic from 1997. Mm-hmm. I definitely saw the movie back then. Mm-hmm. I know that he's not, he wasn't totally pleased with it. That was one of his first big studio pictures and he didn't get final cut. Mm-hmm. There is a director's cut that was released in 2011, oh. which is, okay, here's how I wanted it to be. So I am interested in seeing that. Unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to watch it before covering the story. But honestly, that movie is kind of its own thing. I reread the plot of the movie and it certainly does not match the plot of this story. No. Other than one big obvious concept. Right. But it's, you know, it's got Mir Sorvino making genetically altered cockroaches in the <laughs> sewers in New York and stuff. So, <laughs> you know, it doesn't share too much in common with this. So I think maybe we'll talk about it later if I do get to watch it this month. I read this story online 
in the September 1950 magazine Fantastic Novels. It's like Mm -hmm. a reprint PDF. You can read it there. Although I think it was first published in the December 1942 issue of Astonishing Stories under the pseudonym Martin Pearson. Wolheim did use a lot of pseudonyms in his career. What is the point of using pseudonyms? Well, I imagine that for him, because if he was a prolific writer, it was better to make it seem like there were more contributors Oh, to uh, his... To, to his publications. You know. I see, yes. Okay. The same reason I think, you know, Stephen King would write as Richard Bachman. You can you can do things that are outside of your brand, but also you don't want to flood the market, so it's better to create another persona. Right. We've never covered a, a Wolheim story, so let's talk about the guy himself. Uh, he was born in 1914 in New York City. He was an editor, publisher, writer, and fan. Yeah. Total geek. Yeah. He made a ton of fanzines, but he also started a sci-fi con in Philadelphia in 1936. Now that convention is known as PhilCon. It's That was the first science fiction convention that he got started, which is really cool. Yeah. And since it's in Philadelphia, I would have bet that it was Ben Franklin who did it. But <laughs> here we are. There's another discovery. He also founded the Fantasy Amateur Press Association. And then in 1938, he was one of the founders of the Futurians. The Futurians were a group of science fiction fans, many of whom became editors and writers based in New York City. Mm -hmm. Isaac Asimov was a member and uh, recounts that the Futurians spun off from the Greater New York Science Fiction Club, wishing to take a more overt left-wing political stance. Wolheim was always a fierce defender of writers being paid. He thought that a lot of short stories, especially science fiction writers, were exploited. And I think that caused some trouble. Mm. He was sympathetic to communism and eventually the Futurians became a more professional organization but its roots are in that we're going to create a a sci-fi socialist society of some kind Mm -hmm. Wolheim actually met his wife Elsie through the Futurians they had a lasting marriage and a publishing partnership she worked with him throughout his life he wrote quite a few short stories and novels as I said a lot under pseudonyms although he wrote children's books about space travel and NASA under his own name Mm. so he was cool with being known as a children's author his daughter Betsy has said in true editorial fashion, he was honest about the quality of his own writing. He felt it was fair to middling at best. He always knew that his great talent was as an editor. Mm-hmm. After we get through this, we'll we'll judge whether fair to middling is a good estimation. <laughs> Indeed, he is mostly well-known as an editor. Uh, he's had a long and respected career. I'll just give you some highlights straight out of Wikipedia. Pretty impressive stuff. Mm-hmm. Between 1947 and 1951, he was the editor of the pioneering paperback publisher Avon Books, where he made available highly affordable editions of the works of A. Merritt, a Mr. H.P. Lovecraft, Mm -hmm. and C.S. Lewis, bringing these previously little-known authors a wide readership. In 1952, he left Avon for the Ace Magazine Company and spearheaded a new paperback book list, Ace Books. In 1953, he introduced science fiction to the Ace lineup and for 20 years as editor-in-chief was responsible for their multi-genre list and, more important to him, the renowned science fiction list. Mm. Philip K. Dick, Ursula K. Le Guin, William S. Burroughs, a lot of writers debuted through Ace Books. Right. Wolheim helped develop authors such as Robert Silverberg and Fritz Leiber and Jack Vance. In the early 60s, Ace reintroduced Edgar Rice Burroughs' work, which had been long out of print. And those are the Ace Books that I have in the other room. I love them dearly. All right. That's how I got to know that author. In 1965, Ace bought the paperback rights to Dune. And it was funny, a little anecdote. Walheim was afraid that that title wouldn't work because it would make folks think Dune was a, that it was a Western. Oh. <laughs> Which makes yeah, sense. Of course, you know? yeah. Or a surfing uh, novel or something. <laughs> After leaving Ace in 71, he founded DAW Books, Daw Books, those are his initials. Yeah. And through that emblem, he published writers like Tanith Lee and Michael Shea. Oh. Walheim also edited and published the popular annual World's Best Science Fiction Anthology from 1971 until his death in 1990. 
Robert Silverberg said that Walheim was one of the most significant figures in 20th century American science fiction publishing, adding, a plausible case could be made that he was the most significant figure, responsible in large measure for the development of the science fiction paperback, the science fiction anthology, and the whole post-Tolkien boom in fantasy fiction. Yeah, strangely, in 1964, he asked Tolkien if he could publish the Lord of the Rings books in paperback. Tolkien just dissed the paperback. Yeah. This is from Wikipedia as well. It says, Tolkien said he would never allow his great works to appear in so degenerate a form as the paperback book. (laughs) I didn't realize... That was a thing. Don was one of the fathers of the entire paperback industry, and since before he spearheaded the Ace Line, he was originating editor-in-chief of the Avon paperback list. So, And this was in uh, 1945, so he took this really personally, and he was so offended, he did some research, and he discovered that there was a loophole in the copyright law. Mm -hmm. Houghton Mifflin, that's Tolkien's American hardcover publisher, had neglected to protect the works in the United States. So because he was so angry at Tolkien, he decided that he was going to legally publish them, and and he totally did it. (laughs) But, of course, in the end, this actually made a lot of money for Tolkien and Ballantine Books, and nothing really for him out of the whole deal. But this is what a lot of folks contribute to the whole modern fantasy novel genre. Like, people, all these paperbacks started coming out of fantasy books, and there wasn't really that kind of genre in paperbacks. Right. And that's something now that's still huge. Oh, man. Well, pub- yeah, publishers at the time, they didn't think fantasy novels would sell well. So why would we put them in paperback format? I think about that from my youth. Like, little did they know how many young readers would be using their massive fantasy paperbacks to defend themselves from bullies. You know, if you had a copy of Sword of Sonara, you really wallop somebody with that. Yeah, but yeah. I found that whole story pretty cool because when I was growing up, all we ever had were paperbacks, except for yeah. textbooks or things of like course. that. Of course. And it, so, you know, it didn't cost much to read really great stuff. And mm-hmm. I didn't really know there was snobbery about it. That's what books were to me. Yeah. I just figured hardbacks were what you got out of the library and they had to be that way basically for endurance because a lot of people were using them. Mm-hmm. But once we went to a Christmas party, my family with some kind of fancier people when I was a kid, you know, when you walk into the house and you're a little intimidated mm-hmm. and there was some kind of gift exchange, this physician that was at the party had gotten our family and so my mom opens the gift and it was this really nice hardback book. And she was super impressed by that. She's like, wow, look at this hardcover book. (laughs) The guy who got it for her goes, well, of course. I mean, I would never give somebody a paperback book as a gift. (laughs) And then I saw her like turn bright red because he was her who we selected. And as it got around to him, he unwraps his gift. And she kind of was like starting. I could see her lip quivering because then he opens it up and it was one or two like soft cover books. And then they kind of laughed it off like, oh, I wasn't serious or whatever. But it was, that was the first time I think I saw the division, (laughs) the the upstairs, you know, the upstairs, downstairs of the book industry. Wow. I'm sure everybody was embarrassed in that situation. Yeah, (laughs) they sure were. I I gotta watch it like a play because I didn't know who bought it and what for anybody, you know. Sure, it, It all unfolded to me right there in the moment. (laughs) Oh, boy. So anyhow, let's get into the story. Yes, let's get into it. It has a bit of an introduction before we meet characters or anything. A few paragraphs with that Lovecraftian statement of the premise. We heard some of them at the top. It does sound a little more like a Chris Well monologue from an Ed Wood movie than it does like Lovecraft. <laughs> but that that bit we heard at the top was stating that we feel like we know a lot, but the sciences are still young and there's still a bunch of very scary stuff out there that we don't know about. Yeah. But the real key to the story is the last paragraph of that whole rumination where it says, We search for secrets in the far islands of the Pacific and among the ice fields of the frozen north while under our very noses, rubbing shoulders with us every day, 
There may walk the undiscovered. It is a curious fact of nature that that which is in plain view is oft best hidden. That is certainly true. Sure. Hiding in plain view is a good way to do it. And I think we'll find out as the story goes on if that has anything to do with the plot of the story called Mimic. So the narrator of this tale is a New Yorker, and he's talking about this guy in his neighborhood. Now, he has never talked to this guy, but he saw the quiet guy all the time. As he was growing up, he's been there for a long time, this guy in black. And apparently the narrator's lived in the street as a child, also as an adult, his whole life. This guy is always seen wearing a long black coat and a wide-brimmed hat. And he had lived in this neighborhood as long as the narrator can remember. He talked about how big cities are kind of the places for eccentrics to live a very long time because they'll never really be bothered. I'll give him some points for foreshadowing. He calls it swarming New York, uh-huh. where the eccentric and the odd may flourish unhindered. Uh-huh. Nice uh, nice adjective used there. Uh, when they were kids... They noticed that the black coat guy seemed to be afraid of women. Mm-hmm. So they used to kind of make fun of him and yell at him and stuff, but he just ignored them. And eventually they just got bored because he wasn't engaging them. So they just left him alone. <laughs> yeah, which makes sense that if you don't get a reaction from somebody, you don't pick on them anymore, which seemed to be what that paragraph should be about. But Walheim's text is a little jumbled. He circles <laughs> back to the women thing in a few paragraphs. Yeah. I just didn't see the point of mentioning it here because it seems like the odd appearance of the man would be enough to have kids making fun of him. You know, look, it, it's Count Dracula with his cloak, you know, something like that. <laughs> I just have a hard time imagining these little boys going, look at that guy. He's scared of women. <laughs> it just like seems a little sophisticated. <laughs> yeah, it does. Look at this pose. Oh, his handwriting shows evidence of childhood trauma. <laughs> you know, <laughs> who are these? Who are these kids? Who are these Bowery boys? <laughs> so uh, folks would only see him twice a day, presumably when he was on his way to work and on his way home, always in his black coat and black hat. No one ever seemed to pay much attention to this guy except for women. Mm-hmm. So when he would be walking down the street, if a woman would pass by, he would just freeze until she passed and then he would continue on walking. He never talked to women or anybody for that matter. There was the guy that owned the corner shop on Antonio who said that this black coat guy always came in but he never said anything when he bought his groceries there. He would only point at things. So Antonio didn't like the guy, but he never gave Antonio any problems. In fact, he never gave anybody any problems. Yeah, nobody ever had trouble with him. One of the kids in this neighborhood lived in the same building as this guy, and he said that he, of course, kept to himself. But one time, the man in black had a bunch of metal sheets brought in, and he was building something for several days, but Mm. it stopped the noise, the banging, and then nothing just came of it that was it that was the that was all he remembered yeah that's all I, I thought that was a really cool economic part of the story that they'd heard a lot of hammering and banging in his room for several days but that had stopped and that was all there was to that story mm-hmm. which is you know that's how most stories end that are weird the guy was wearing a belt with a bunch of doll legs dangling from it <laughs> he waved at us got in his truck and drove away no idea what it was about ultimately that's all i can tell you the story ends when that character left my life <laughs> And that did seem like real to me. It did. It did. Nobody ever knew what the guy had worked on, but his rent was always paid when the janitor came to collect. So he had money. He did his part. What more can you ask of a fella? Yeah. And, that, and then we get the setup. People like that inhabit big cities and nobody knows the story of their lives until they're all over. 
or until something strange happens. So now the story moves into the present day. Uh, the narrator tells of how he went to college and then moved back to his neighborhood. Uh, he is a museum curator. He classifies exhibits of stuffed animals and he also mounts beetles. He talks about how in nature camouflage is everywhere. Things look like other things to survive. Insects can look like leaves or sticks. Yeah, I still have a really vivid memory of finding my first walking stick when I was a kid. It totally blew my mind. It was on my driveway so you could actually see it. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously I could have seen a million of them by that point. Sure. Camouflage as sticks, but I'm a little suspicious of my desk even now as I think about that. But it really was the coolest to see the, to hold one. They're very cool creatures, and I didn't even know we had them around around our area growing up. I've never saw one, so yeah, they were rare to see. Good job on that camouflage. They really did good. He talks about a moth in Central America that looks like a wasp. It's colored to look just like one, and its fur gives off a shiny hue, just like a wasp's armor. Then I looked this up, and I didn't find a South American moth that looked like this, but there is a, a Middle Eastern European insect called a hornet moth. And yeah, dude, it totally looks, I saw pictures of it looks just like a wasp. But there's also a Caribbean polka dot wasp moth, which does pretty much the exact same thing. That's crazy. It just shows how insanely specific a random process like natural selection can be. Yeah. Because this, these insects didn't make these decisions. It's not like when I wear exercise clothes so that people think I worked out. That's something I did on purpose. This is for them. This is generations of animals yes. evolving, favoring the mutations that make them look yeah. less delicious until they're these replicas of higher predators. Now, you said random. Now, these things aren't really random or accidental. Yeah. I mean, they, they happen because they help them survive better. Yeah, yeah, correct. You're right. That's the wrong way to put it. Well, it's just because sometimes when people make arguments about evolution, they'll say, well, how can mm -hmm. an eye accidentally form? And it's like, well, it didn't accidentally form. It formed because cells became light sensitive and those light sensitive cells Correct, yeah. were helpful to the survival of that creature. And they, as they mutated, they became more useful. And then that those traits uh, continued on. So it's not accidental. I know you know that. I just wanted to, to point that out. Well, yeah, but nobody's ever told me not to say that. I'm sure I've said it lots of times. Well, there you go. Good work. <laughs> I'll pass that one on too. That'll, what's that uh, Helen Hunt movie with? Uh, pay it for. I'll pay that forward. <laughs> Good, and I hope our <laughs> listeners will also pay that forward. Pay it forward, guys. Uh, he then talks of army ants and how they are a danger to almost any creature, but there are insects that have adapted in ways to let them hide among the army ants. Yes. And he talks of beetles that look like ants, an insect that looks like three ants in a row, which is pretty interesting. Now, I started reading up on this as well, and the thing is that ants actually have terrible vision. For them, it's all about the smell of things. So this visual stuff isn't such a big deal. What this is really about is that the imposters blend in with the ants so that predators won't eat them because they don't like ants. Right. That's why it's a useful thing. But man, there are a lot of bugs that look like ants. Like I couldn't, there's a whole Wikipedia entry on bugs that look like, it's It's not even insects, it's bugs that look like ants. Mm. There are spiders, there are orthoptera. Go into this and look at all these things and man, they do, they do look like ants. The author writes, they have false markings like ant thoraxes and they run along an imitation of ant speed. So I just laughed. I was like, you know, imitation of ant speed is exactly the same as ant speed. <laughs> I think what he meant in the writing was that it's imitation of ant movement, but he wrote ant speed. Yeah, I know. I, I, I didn't, you know, I didn't dwell on it. <laughs> he says these adaptations help the weak to survive by looking more powerful than they are. And the most powerful creature, of course, is man. Man is the greatest killer, the greatest hunter of them all. The whole world of nature knows man for the irresistible master. The roar of his gun, the cunning of his trap, 
the strength and agility of his arm placed all else beneath him. Man, that's some Robert E. Howard stuff there. Yeah. So now we get into the incident. The narrator is coming home late at night. He was at work. They have a new exhibit that he has to get done. So he's, he's burning the midnight oil. On his way home, he hears the scream. He runs to where the scream is and a police officer runs to the same place as he's running to. And it's the building where this man in black lives. It's the janitor who screamed. And he says that he heard someone thrashing around in the man in black's room and then some shrill screams and then someone groaning as if in pain. So either somebody was having great sex mm-hmm. or getting murdered. <laughs> and it's always one or the other. And the janitor knows, hey, I'm going to let these guys do the investigating. He's seen way too much at this point. <laughs> so uh, the cop and the narrator go up with the janitor and they listen at the door and it's totally quiet. Then they decide to bust in. They're ready to ruin some folks afterglow. That's what the, the plan is. They want to just... I hope so. Ha- they had great sex, and now these assholes <laughs> come bursting in. Hey, you guys are dirty. <laughs> so when they do bust in, the room is totally unfurnished and littered with garbage. There's a large four-foot metal box that is held together with screws and rope, and it has a lid on top of it, which is fastened with a wax seal. So obviously this is the metal thing he was building back in the past. They find the man in black dead on the floor, still in his coat. From inside the box, they hear some rustling sound. So they roll the man over and open his coat, and it just seems to be a guy in some clothes at first. His hair was short and curly brown. It stood straight up in its inch-long length. His eyes were open and staring. I noticed first that he had no eyebrows, only a curious dark line in the flesh over each eye. It was then that I realized that he had no nose, but no one had ever noticed that before. His skin was oddly mottled. Where the nose should have been, there were dark shadowings that made the appearance of a nose if you only just glanced at him, like the work of a skillful artist in a painting. His mouth was as it should be, and slightly open, but he had no teeth. His head perched upon a thin neck. The suit was not a suit. It was part of him. It was his body. What we thought was a coat was a huge black wing sheath, like a beetle has. He had a thorax, like an insect, only the wing sheath covered it, and you couldn't notice it when he wore the cloak. The body bulged out below tapering off into the two long, thin hind legs. His arms came out from under the top of the coat. He had a tiny secondary pair of arms folded tightly across his chest. There was a sharp, round hole newly pierced in his chest just above these arms, still oozing a watery liquid. Woo! (laughs) So the janitor sees this and he just runs out gibbering which I thought was so Lovecraftian. Absolutely. And the cop gets sickly pale and he starts saying Hail Marys. Now, you know this is coming. He's set all of this up. And Mm -hmm. I also saw the movie Mimic and this was the one thing this guy was in that movie. So again, I knew it was coming. But it was a strange way to lay it all out because I don't generally scan a person starting at the top of their head, (laughs) you know, and going down to their toes in order to see what they look like, you know. (laughs) Like, if you have a thorax like an insect, I'm probably going to notice that first before I look at anything else. But the narrator's like, the hair is odd. Now let's look at the eyes. Okay, now let's get down to the mouth. Hmm, okay, it's, it's weird, but it's getting worse. And oh my God, how I think, how did you not mention the multiple arms first? So I was surprised by this, but our reader, Greg, especially he must have been getting these, because we just sent him the quotes, right? So he's yeah. getting it out of context as well. Really thought that this was some crappy writing. <laughs> 
And when he sent his reading over, he was like, uh, it really bugged him. So he gave an example of what he felt the text read like. This was Greg's version of it. His curly hair was straight and he had a coat, but it wasn't a coat. It was wings like an insect has. He was like an insect. And we saw the coat, which was wings. Although no one knew that because you couldn't notice it. And just above the coat, he had two arms and eyes. He had two more arms as well as eyes. His eyes were shapes like a good painter might paint in a painting. (laughs) And he asked, uh, he goes, I'm curious, was this story either translated from a language other than English by a computer or written by a seven-year-old? Which, if we think back to what Wolheim said about himself, I think that actually is the modern equivalent of fair to middling, you know? Computer or child. Who knows? <laughs> Good work, Craig. Anyway, there is more description of this dead body. Yes, he notes that the stomach, the lower thorax of it, looks deflated, like a wasp that had just laid her eggs. He says, The sight was a shock such as leaves one in full control. The mind rejects it, and it is only an afterthought that one can feel the dim shudder of horror. Yeah, I love that. Why did you grab that passage? Well, because that he's able to react and deal with all of these things. Yeah. Even though it's really bizarre, it's after the fact when he kind of puts everything in context that he realizes how horrific this thing truly is. Yeah, and I love that too, the delayed reaction. I, I thought it was, that's not often covered in the Lovecraftian madness spectrum. No. People generally immediately have a reaction. But this is more realistic. I mean, that's mostly what I've experienced I think about when you get in a fender bender or yeah. something dangerous like that, where you just kind of shut down and go, okay, this is happening now. You deal with you it. You get through it. Mm-hmm. And then later, that's when you go, oh, you have the panic attack, you know? Yeah. You re-experience yeah. it. He and the cop decide to look in the box. Maybe it's a person all tied up or some such in there. Who knows? And when they do, a bunch of things come flying out. Dozens of them. They're two or three inches long, wide beetle wings, but they look like little men in black coats. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And he watches them hypnotize as they fly out of the window. It's only later, again, for him that the sheer horror of this hits him. It's But it's so strange. All of them flying out the window. It's like a Goya painting or something. All yeah. of these humanoid insect things with little man's faces. I just loved the imagery of it. They find some bones in the box, but they can't identify them. They think maybe they're human. Right. He says they didn't try hard to identify them. Yeah. And I was thinking, I hope somebody did. Because, you know, you can turn those over to some people who will try a little harder. Nobody expects the guy who runs the museum and the beat cop to take care of this. Yeah. Somebody thinks their husband ran off, but he was bug food. We need to get those bones to the authorities. <laughs> Now, he thinks back about the reactions of this guy to women. He wonders, he goes, maybe it was not that it was afraid of the women, but he thinks that maybe the women were more likely to notice that it wasn't really a man. And it was also the fact that this thing was disguised as a man, even though it was female itself, because the things in the box were its young. Yeah, so two additional revelations here. The man in the coat, aside from being an insect, also not a man. And his fear of women is based on women being more naturally suspicious of men? Maybe. That seemed like a weird payoff to me because when there's a guy in a big black cloak, a lot of guys are going to be suspicious as well. Yeah. You know, but then the author also speculates there might perhaps have been some touch of instinctive feminine jealousy. On whose part? I don't even know what that means. (laughs) What does that mean? I don't get it. (laughs) Is the mimic guy jealous because the women get to be women and he's like... You know, because of my physiology, I have to dress like a man. 
<laughs> are the women a little going to examine him a little more closely? But then what would they be? Because they sense that he's a woman and like, if there's a woman in there, I'm going to be jealous. I just, is, I is can't that tell if there's a woman in there. But if there is, because when I look at a woman, any woman, I'm jealous. I was trying to really f- puzzle that out. I honestly didn't understand. <laughs> I it. still don't understand it. Last little bit, what really freaked him out was what he saw at the very end. Yes. As the sun was coming up and he watched those little men in black creatures flying away, he saw something else. Shaken, I looked away from that fourth floor tenement room over the roofs of the lower buildings. Chimneys and walls and empty clotheslines made the scenery over which the tiny mass of horror passed. And then I saw a chimney not 30 feet away on the next roof. It was squat, arid red brick and had two black pipe ends flush with its top. I saw it suddenly vibrate oddly and its red brick surface seemed to peel away and the black pipe openings turned suddenly white. I saw two big eyes staring up into the sky. A great flat-winged thing detached itself silently from the surface of the real chimney and darted hungrily after the cloud of flying things. I watched until all had lost themselves in the sky. Oh man, I thought that was a cool ending. Yeah, that was a cool ending. I didn't expect a second mimic. No, that one got me. The first mimic was teased out pretty well. Yeah. You kind of knew it was coming, the man in black, but chimney mimic, nope, not set up. Yeah, it's a good button. It's also a great ending because it tells you there's probably all sorts of stuff in the urban landscape that we're missing all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe when they find a body in a dumpster, it was the dumpster that did it. (laughs) You know? (laughs) Yes. It's great. It's a really cool idea. The writing isn't great, but it didn't bother me because it's so short. I was just able to kind of fly through it and get get the ideas of it. And I was really impressed with the ending. I thought that was really creepy. Yeah. Yeah, it's all right. No, the writing didn't bug me at all. If anything, I enjoyed it. For what it lacked, I I don't know. It had enthusiasm or something. I was just, you know, I I was cool with it. But, you know, I did like to poke a little fun at it. This story appeared in a recent compilation called The Weird, a compendium of strange and dark stories, Uh which was edited by Jeff and Ann Vandermeer. Somebody had just mentioned that, so I was flipping through the table of contents of that book, and there was a story that popped up that I've never heard of before that seems appropriate to follow this one. Mm -hmm. It's called The Vegetable Man by an author called Luigi Ugolini. And so I found a translation of that online, and I think let's tackle that next. I think think it's about a little vegetable coming to life or something. Uh, Early story, like 1917, so kind of pre-sci-fi sci-fi, so should be interesting. Probably definitely will be weird. I want to thank one of my favorite weird guys, Greg Johnson, for reading for us. He's such a cute little scamp, 17-year-old, with that kind of voice. Can you imagine? (laughs) I know. (laughs) Amazing. Greg, we're so glad to have you as always. Thank you for your contributions. And with that, I am Chris Lackey. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And you've been listening to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast at hppodcraft.com. HPPodcraft.com. Ah!